Well, welcome everyone to this special episode of Kickback. It's the 50th episode and we're really happy that we have been able to come to you every other week for the last two years. Kickback is a joint production that includes the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. We are a group a network of young scholars, researchers, policymakers that are interested in corruption and more importantly interested in finding ways how to fight corruption or to tackle corruption. And we are really glad that this podcast is another way how we can reach the audience out there. And we look forward to the next 50 episodes. On the occasion of our 50th episode, I just want to take this opportunity to thank my collaborators at the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and to thank all of our listeners. It's been a great pleasure for me to be able to be part of this project. And I think especially under current circumstances where it's so much more difficult to travel and meet people and have these kinds of conversations in person that we're able through platforms like the Kickback Podcast, uh, like the Global Anti-Corruption Blog, which uh, I helped to run, to engage in these kinds of important conversations with uh, people all around the world on this vitally important topic. So thank you to my collaborators. Thank you to all of you listening. And I hope we are able to continue to provide you with interesting and informative content about the struggle against corruption around the world. Wow. 50 episodes. I think this was really a team effort. So so thanks a lot to all of you. I still remember quite vividly how I uploaded the first episode exactly two years ago from a cafe in Sevilla. And now 50 episodes later, uh, I think we've achieved quite something. And for this anniversary, I went a little bit into the data. And over the last two years, we have a total of 35,000 hits from all over the world, from 104 countries to be exact. And some of them are quite surprising. Some smaller countries, we have very loyal listeners, for example, the Maldives and the Bahamas. So shout out to our listeners from there. But thanks to all listeners from across the world for the loyal support and, and for tuning in every second week to our new episodes. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Oleseas Tamate. Olesea served as the Minister of Justice for the Republic of Moldova in 2019 under then Prime Minister Maya Sandu. Uh, that government fell near the end of 2019, but uh, Ms. Sandu was then elected president of the Republic of Moldova a little over a year later in December 2020. And Ms. Tamate now serves as an advisor to the president, focused principally on justice issues. So, um, Olesea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation. I think maybe the best way to start out our conversation is for me to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit more about your own background. I gather that before you served in government, you were very active in uh, civil society, but can you talk a little bit about your own path? What brought you to where you are now? Sure. Yeah, indeed, I've been working in the civil society in one form or another since 2005, actually. Uh, so I used to work as a program coordinator and then program director for the Soros Foundation in Moldova 
For several years, I led the uh, Good Governance uh, Program uh, at the Soros Foundation, uh, where uh, we have initiated several interesting projects, which are also connected to the um, fight against corruption. And one of them was the Civic Initiative for a Clean Parliament, uh, where together with seven uh, other CSOs, we tried to identify those candidates uh, at elections, at national elections, who did not fulfill the integrity criteria and try to first convince them to withdraw. And if, they, uh, if the party would not withdraw them from the list, then we would make the list public, the information about their integrity issue public. So uh, this uh, project actually continued uh, for a number of years after I have um, uh, left uh, the Soros Foundation. And later on, uh, um, with, the, uh, with a couple of colleagues, we've set up a public association, an NGO, uh, which is called the Association for Effective and Accountable uh, Governance. Uh, which is uh, concerned uh, with uh, activities related to uh, making the uh, Governance Act more transparent, to promote justice reform, and to, of course, advance uh, the anti-corruption efforts in uh, various sectors. Uh, One of the major sectors that we focused on in the last several years uh, with my colleagues were to monitor the spending of public funds, with particular focus on uh, public procurement monitoring. And we've managed to reveal quite a number of, let's say, interesting schemes of how public money is misused through public procurement. And uh, let's say it's in a way a natural continuation of uh, this effort was to join the government uh, while Maya Sandu was the prime minister. Because from the level of the government, there are different type of actions that you can undertake as compared to what you can do from the civil society. So at that stage, I consider that my background and my experience would uh, contribute to uh, shaping uh, national policies in the area of justice reform and fight against corruption. So I'm wondering whether... After you joined the government, after you're working in the government, you talked about it was a very natural continuation of the work you've been doing in civil society. Did your perspective change at all? Are there things that you learned during your time in government that were in any way different from what you expected from your time in civil society? Or was, or was it really very much just a continuation of what you were doing before, but now you had the, the power and authority of government behind you? Well, one thing that I've discovered uh, in the government, which came a little bit as a surprise to me was the speed with which uh, you can actually develop certain policies and change certain things. Being part of the civil society, you always expect the government to do uh, certain actions and you want it fast. Now, on the other side, being in the government, you come to realize that some processes take much longer than uh, one expects. And this was, uh, if you want, at the beginning, a sort of frustration because being already in the government, I expected that things can move much faster (laughs) and they didn't because it's not only uh, depending on you, it depends on the whole apparatus of the ministry that you're leading and at the same time on all the other colleagues in the other ministries with whom you have to coordinate before you issue uh, a public policy document. So this was one, uh, one of, the, of the aspects. Uh, on the other hand, of course, 
in case, and this was not exactly the case uh, when we were in the government, in case you have uh, sufficient support in the parliament, some changes you can promote quite efficiently and uh, relatively fast. So this is a leverage that, that you have being in the government, which you clearly don't have when you are uh, in the civil society. So it's things that you can do uh, which have more or less immediate impact on the quality of, uh, of life of the citizens. And this is, of course, satisfying and encouraging at the same time. Unfortunately, we were not able to pursue uh, the agenda as uh, we set it because we did not have sufficient support in the parliament. Actually, that's a perfectly uh, great transition point to ask you to talk a little bit more generally about the situation in Moldova, particularly with respect to the fight against corruption. I think that Moldova is a relatively small country. It maybe doesn't get as much international attention as some of the other uh, countries in your region. But I know that a lot has been going on there, a lot of it pertaining in particular to concerns about corruption, anti-corruption. It would be great if you could talk a little bit, and I know it's such a big topic, it's, it's difficult to do uh, succinctly, but it would be great if you could talk a little bit in general terms about the, the current situation in Moldova with respect to corruption. And also, you, you just referenced a moment ago the agenda that the Sandu government, you and your colleagues in that government, had for fighting corruption uh, that you weren't able to implement in part because that government was in power for so little time. But it would be great if you could also talk about, in your view, what should be the most important items on the anti-corruption or broadly good governance reform agenda in Moldova for the coming years? Well, let me start by uh, saying that Moldova is a small country indeed. And in theory, it shouldn't be so complicated and shouldn't take so long uh, to bring a bit of order in this country. Because the, the size of the country, because of the size of the population, because apparently the interests are not that high. At the same time, in the last several years, and this has been uh, also acknowledged by uh, the international community, uh, Moldova has faced a situation of state capture. Uh, whereby uh, most of the state institutions, including uh, the justice sector, also uh, the institutions that are um, supposed to fight corruption, have been captured by uh, oligarchs and by interest groups. Uh, for several, several years, there was uh, one name uh, which was linked to this process, and this was Vlad Plachotniuk, who is currently out of the country and who is also uh, linked to the banking fraud, to the one billion fraud that the international uh, press has uh, written about. So in this context, uh, when we were in the government, we assessed the current situation and the only possible solution to actually clean uh, the justice sector seemed to be the external evaluation of uh, all judges and prosecutors. Uh, this is an instrument uh, that has been used in several European countries. Uh, it is going on now uh, in Albania. In Albania, it, is, uh, it seems to be uh, resultful, although a very complicated and lengthy process. But honestly, at that time, and 
this, I mean, this, this has not changed a lot since 2019 we, when we were in the government. It seems the uh, only possibility to ensure the well-functioning of the justice system in the interest of the citizens for medium and long term. Uh, because we tried to, to, to trigger some faster results to see if the system would be eventually able to clean itself from within. Given the fact that the context, the political context has changed, given the fact that Plachotniuk uh, was not no more because he fled the country, was no longer a threat to judges, to prosecutors who have been blackmailed uh, by him. Some of them re received monthly envelope uh, salaries from, from him. Uh, so we thought that maybe, given a chance, the system might be able to clean from within prosecutors through its uh, Supreme Council of Prosecutors and judges through the Supreme Council of Magistracy. But uh, in a very short time, we uh, realized that this was not possible because the uh, corruption and illegalities in the system were so widespread that covered a very large share of prosecutors and judges. And therefore, given all the interests and all the connections, they were just unable to do this exercise by themselves. Uh, therefore, we initiated this draft law on the so-called vetting. Uh, this is, let's say, the less legal name uh, for the external evaluation, uh, which was uh, drafted and had to be submitted to the parliament uh, for approval. But then it became quite obvious that one of the parties from the uh, governing coalition, namely the Socialist Party, would not support that because they did not support our competition for uh, a general prosecutor. And um, shortly after the government fell, it was dismissed by the parliament. So it was, uh, it, it was obvious. I mean, we had sig signals before, but then it was illustrative to everyone that uh, one component from the uh, government coalition did not want justice reform, an anti-corruption uh, genuine uh, fight. Can I ask, just to elaborate a little bit on this uh, proposed reform, when you say that there would be external evaluations of all judges and prosecutors, there'd be vetting of uh, judges and prosecutors, who would conduct the external evaluations and according to what standard? How would it work exactly? Well, we have followed to a certain extent the Albanian model. Mm -hmm. However, in Albania, this uh, vetting had un unanimity, un unanimous support in the parliament, and they were able to change the constitution in order to implement this uh, mechanism. In Moldova, even though uh, we would like to have a broader support from the, the parliament, broader than a majority, broader than a simple majority, uh, given the current context, we do not necessarily see uh, an opportunity or a possibility to amend the constitution. Therefore, we try to adapt the Albanian model to the Moldovan legal system so that it does not interfere with the constitution. So in this scenario, uh, the vetting itself would be done by, the, by uh, a body which is formed nationally, from former judges and prosecutors and from civil society representatives. But the key element here is that there is an international observation mission made up of international experts 
also, in many cases, former judges and prosecutors from, from other countries, particularly EU countries, which would uh, participate in shaping or in selecting the National Evaluation Board and would oversee the whole process of vetting throughout. So they would have a decisive role in the process, being also able to complain against, eventually, to complain against the decision of this vetting board. I see. So that's really interesting. The role, in particular, of international observers uh, is, is something that's very um, notable and maybe not unheard of, but at least a little bit unusual. It reminds me a little bit, it's not the same, but it reminds me a little bit of the process that Ukraine has set up for the selection of judges to its high anti-corruption court, where an international panel of experts uh, plays a role in screening. That's, of course, different because that's with respect to selection of people who have not yet been appointed as opposed to the evaluation of people who have. But that, uh, that partly addresses the next question I want to ask you about this, but I want to ask it anyway. Everything you say makes sense, especially given how deeply rooted the corruption is in the institutions of justice. But I could imagine someone, especially someone from a country in Western Europe or North America, hearing you describe the idea for the formation of an external committee to evaluate and potentially discipline or remove um, judges, being concerned about potential interference with judicial independence or the potential misuse of these mechanisms by governments that might not have the same kinds of good intentions, let's say, uh, that the government that you served had. Is that something that you thought about? Is that part of the debate in Moldova? I mean, how do you respond to concerns that in trying to root out corruption in the judiciary in particular, these kinds of external review or disciplining mechanisms could interfere with principles of judicial independence and lead to executive interference or executive pressure on judges to decide cases in a particular way? Yes, yeah, so uh, these concerns are uh, fully, fully understood. And of course, we have been considering this when we were developing this draft law. We have also had uh, numerous discussions with the representatives of the Council of Europe and particularly with the Venice Commission trying to ensure, first of all, to convince them about the necessity of this exercise in Moldova, uh, to ensure them that our intentions are genuine, to uh, make sure that this is seen as a last resort and a one-time only exercise. And of course, we cannot fully, since we did not envisage changing the constitution, we cannot fully avoid the existing national structures if we refer to the Supreme Council of Prosecutors or the Supreme Council of Magistracy. So in the end, the recommendation which comes from this vetting board goes to the SCP or to the SCM, and they are the ones who take the final decision on the disciplinary sanctioning or on the uh, dismissal of the judge or the prosecutor from the, from the system. And uh, what I would also like to mention is that the focus, the primary focus of this vetting would be on integrity issues. So the vetting commission would uh, look at two aspects. And the first aspect is integrity. Basically, we refer here to incomes and assets. To what extent their assets are justified by uh, the incomes that they've declared uh, through the years. And the second aspect relates to professionalism. So to what extent that the, they, their decisions during their professional career were justified and were legal. 
Now, they would only undergo or they would only go to the second stage in case they passed positive uh, the first stage. So our, our primary focus is integrity. I see. So that's really interesting. Let me ask another question related to the corruption of the institutions of justice. And you'll have to forgive my relative ignorance about Moldova's uh, political and legal system. A number of countries, including some in Central and Eastern Europe, and also a number outside of uh, that region, have created special bodies or units in the prosecution service and sometimes in the judiciary uh, to deal with corruption in particular, partly in response to problems of the sort that you described, that the ordinary courts or the ordinary prosecution service is compromised or captured or simply unreliable. I I know that Moldova has something called the National Anti-Corruption Center. Uh, I'm not completely clear on what its role and functions are. Can Can you explain a little bit for me and for our listeners, first of all, whether Moldova indeed does have specialized investigators, prosecutors, and or courts to deal with corruption in particular, and also the extent to which you think in the Moldovan context, that sort of uh, specialization or the creation of independent or autonomous anti-corruption institutions is a promising part of the solution, or whether you think that's not really something that's likely to work terribly effective in the Moldovan context? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, We currently have two specialized anti-corruption institutions. One of them is the National Anti-Corruption Center, uh, which primarily deals with uh, small and systemic corruption. So they don't deal with uh, high-level corruption cases. And there are specific area of subjects that they would not deal with. And the second one is the Anti-Corruption Prosecution Office, which is uh, in the structure of the General Prosecution Office, uh, which deals already with the rest of the cases. So it's primarily the big corruption uh, cases. Now, Both these institutions were part of those captured institutions uh, during the state capture uh, time. And uh, the majority of the staff uh, which is currently working in these two institutions is the same as three or four years ago where these institutions uh, were captured. This is the main reason why we don't see any uh, progress or any substantive results in the fight against corruption. And we were considering, actually, on how to, because vetting uh, is still on our agenda. Once we have a a sound majority of MPs, of honest MPs in the parliament, and we can go through uh, and adopt this uh, law on vetting, we will go on with it. But this is a process which is lengthy and which will deliver results, let's say, the soonest in two or three years from now on, the first results, visible results will be, will be uh, delivered. And since we can't wait that long, we were also thinking of more short to medium term changes, which could be uh, employed. And this, of course, it always brings us to uh, the competences of these two anti-corruption institutions, the National Anti-Corruption Center and the uh, Anti-Corruption Prosecution Office. The the main question is how you make it work. It does not that much because the specific context of of Moldova, and it might not be unique in Moldova, we have quite good laws in general. So the legislation is quite good. I mean, it is according to uh, most of the international standards. It offers 
a significant independence, sufficient independence, both to the judiciary and to the prosecution service, uh, as well as to many other regulatory institutions. At the same time, what we are lacking is accountability. So we've set up these institutions, which are highly independent by law, and unfortunately, they became independent from the law. And now we have to think what are those accountability mechanisms that we can uh, introduce. For instance, we were thinking on whether or not should we maintain the existence of this National Anti-Corruption Center or should we merge it with the anti-corruption prosecution? So we have a strong one authority which has both investigation officers, which has both prosecutors, and they are able to deal with the cases from A to Z. And this is, in theory, it looks very good. We would, be, we would happily pursue this change. But what happens is that you cannot change one prosecutor in the anti-corruption prosecution office without the participation of the Supreme Council of Prosecutors. Because the Constitution says that the SCP is responsible for the selection, evaluation, and promotion of prosecutors. So this refers to every prosecutor in the system. So even if you come to fortify this institution, to strengthen the institutions, to give it capacities, to train them, etc., you cannot change one prosecutor. You cannot change the head of the anti-corruption prosecution office. And then you're stuck with the same question. How do you do it? Because it is quite clear that with the current composition of the Supreme Council of Prosecutors, you cannot advance on reforms. They will be just continue to protect each other. So this is fascinating and somewhat disheartening because I feel like, and you should correct me if this is a, a, an oversimplification or a misunderstanding of the points that you're making, with respect both to the judiciary and these uh, specialized anti-corruption prosecutorial agencies, features that are often in many contexts considered essential, particularly guarantees of institutional independence and operational autonomy. In the Moldovan context, in your perspective, those features are actually impediments to genuine reform because the institutions have been so thoroughly captured. I mean, when I talk to people generally about anti-corruption agencies, usually what people emphasize is the most important thing that you have to ensure is that those entities have operational autonomy and independence from the legislative and executive branches, for example, by preventing the, the parliament or the executive branch from removing the head or reassigning prosecutors uh, without the approval of some kind of autonomous body. And it sounds like in Moldova, those same legal structures in your view, are actually significant impediments to addressing the state capture problem. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. And while these instruments and mechanisms look perfect on paper, in practice, they have proven to be inefficient. And I would explain you why. If you have a governance, let's say, a majority in the parliament and the government who is willing to capture these institutions, to control these institutions, Regardless of how perfect the legal framework is to ensure their independence, they manage to go around and to control the key factors in these institutions, in the prosecution and in the judiciary. And this is what they did through various means, through direct threats and blackmailing, through paying uh, high salaries uh, in an envelope, etc. 
Now, when you have a government which is committed to reform and which has, has a genuine desire to fight corruption, it is in a situation when it cannot change one single person. And it's stuck with the ones that have been compromised over the years and continue to do their job as, they're used to, as they used to do uh, before. I mean, it seems like a very, very difficult situation to break out of and a very, very challenging set of issues for, for institutional reformers to deal with because the same tools that can be used to prevent improper interference with the institutions of justice can also be used to prevent reform of the institutions of justice. Another, it seems like very difficult problem or challenge that your description of the Moldovan situation highlights is that, and again, correct me if this is an oversimplification or if I'm misunderstanding, it seems like that in order to reform the institutions of justice and increase their integrity, you would need the support of the parliament. Ideally, if not unanimity, then a supermajority, but at the very least a majority. But if I understand you correctly, the parliament itself, not every member of the parliament, but many members of the parliament are themselves compromised and benefit from a corrupt system or in the pockets of the oligarchs. And I presume have a degree of impunity precisely because the institutions of justice, like the courts and the prosecutors, have also been compromised. So you can't hold the parliamentarians accountable unless you can clean up corruption in the institutions of justice, but you can't reform the institutions of justice until you have the support of a sufficient number of the parliamentarians. Is that a, is that a fair, if depressing, description of the problem? Absolutely. It's not oversimplification. It's a perfect illustration of how the situation looks like in Moldova. So this may be an impossible question that no one's really figured out how to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What are your thoughts as someone who served both in civil society and in the government about how to break out of that vicious cycle? So it sounds like during the brief period when you were the minister of justice under the Sandu government, you would hope to reform the institutions of justice, but were stymied by lack of support in the parliament. How can you build enough parliamentary support to reform the institutions of justice when a sufficient number of parliamentarians have also been corrupted and are not really worried about being held accountable precisely because of corruption in the courts and prosecution service. Well, this is exactly why we are uh, thriving to have anticipated parliamentary elections. And this is actually the fight that has been or is being carried out now uh, on the Moldovan political scene. Uh, there are forces that, and this is the majority of the MPs in the parliament that strongly oppose anticipated parliamentary elections. And there is, a, let's say, a, a bunch of honest people who understand that this is the only solution, because otherwise we have to wait until 2023. And by that time, many other Moldovans would have fled the country. I see. So the strategy really is to rely in some sense on the democratic process, imperfect though it is and corrupted though it may be, that if the reformist faction can through snap parliamentary elections get a sufficient majority in the parliament, then at that point you might be able to move ahead with reform of the justice sector. And if the justice sector is reformed, then that might help going forward root out corruption in the parliament and elsewhere. Is that as, is, again, I, it's, I, I feel self-conscious about being so oversimplified about it, but is that a fair description of the strategy? 
Absolutely. Uh, this is actually the only valid strategy as it looks from this current standpoint. Because with, um, uh, let's say, an honest majority in the parliament, which does not seem so complicated to achieve if we look at the recent opinion polls, the most recent opinion polls, would be able to pursue the necessary uh, reforms in the justice. And then what, what we need to have is to have at least a number of high resonance, high level corruption cases, which are punished, which are effectively sanctioned. Uh, and then this would break the circle of impun impunity and would put everyone who feels that they have a problem with justice on hold. And they would eventually refrain, and I refer here also from acting prosecutors, from acting judges, from taking decisions that might threaten their freedom and liberty in the end. So what I ask you about a different aspect of the problem, and let me, let me get to it by building on what you just said. It seems obvious, obviously correct, at least to me, that ultimately the solution to Moldova's problems have to come from the Moldovan people through the political process, through the democratic process. That said, I'm curious as to your perspective about what constructive role, if any, international institutions or foreign governments or foreign civil society uh, organizations or the international community more generally might play in this process. Earlier in our conversation, you referred in passing to uh, the European Union, to the Venice Commission. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the IMF has been engaged with Moldova uh, and in, that, in the process of that engagement has touched at least on some issues related to governance and integrity. So I'd be curious, um, maybe I can ask the question from both directions, what can the international community do or has the international community done to be helpful? And also what kinds of interventions or engagement should the international community avoid or what has not been helpful? And I ask this because I know from talking to other people um, not so much from Moldova, but in your region and elsewhere, that sometimes these bodies, though well-meaning, can get involved or intervene in a way that's, that's counterproductive to the larger agenda. So can you talk in general about the role, if any, for the international community in supporting anti-corruption and good governance reforms in Moldova? I mean, the international community uh, has always played a very active role in many aspects in the Moldovan uh, society life. Uh, on one hand, it has significantly supported uh, the civil society uh, development, but some, some of the media uh, sources that otherwise would have not been able to uh, sustain their activity. So on the development side, our, uh, let's say, development partners in the international community have done a lot. At the same time, there is a set of conditionalities which has been uh, put in front recently. I mean, they have been there forever. I mean, at any stage of disbursement of the, uh, let's say, macrofinancial assistance from the EU or the concluding the agreement with the IMF. Uh, but in the recent years, we have seen, for instance, on the side of the EU, a much more pragmatic and practical approach towards setting up these conditionalities. Because uh, the EU realized that uh, most of the condition, uh, former or earlier conditionalities referred very much to adapting the legislation to EU standards. 
And of course, it became obvious over time that adopting a law does not necessarily implementing effective reforms based on that law. So you can have a perfect law, as we discussed earlier, but nothing actually is changing. And therefore, uh, the EU uh, in the recent years was much more careful when setting up this conditionality. So they want to have concrete results. They want to have, for instance, concrete investigations of the small, of the uh, big corruption cases uh, put on table and delivered by the, uh, by the Moldovan authorities. Uh, so in this respect, international community puts indirect pressure on the Moldovan government to uh, advance the, the anti-corruption uh, reforms. Is it your impression that that, that pressure has been generally helpful and effective? And again, the reason I ask is that I can think of examples of countries where the, the general perception is that this kind of outside intervention or pressure has been effective, but there are also instances where it can um, backfire in a sense. The, the rhetoric of nationalism and aversion to foreign meddling and so forth uh, is very powerful in some political contexts. My impression, again, I'm no expert in Moldova, but my impression is that Moldova is to some extent caught between the EU and Russia, which vie for influence in the country and that different parties are closer to one or closer to the other. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm curious to know whether in your view, the way that the EU has been engaging with Moldova on these issues has generally been um, productive and helpful or whether it's complicated in the sense that it can trigger accusations of foreign meddling or, or what have you. No, in general, this involvement and this contribution has been positive and have, has had positive effects. If we uh, remember, actually, in the years when Plahotniuk was ruling the country indirectly, but through all his uh, mechanisms and people, I mean, because uh, he was, uh, let's say, financing or backing one of the so-called pro-European parties. It was the Democratic Party. A party which has adhered to uh, EU integration values and which has openly stated the, that the, uh, their objective is that to bring uh, Moldova into the EU. But at the same time, their actions were exactly opposite. And it was a period at the beginning when the EU, as well as other international um, uh, partners, had to, let's say, for a short period of time, they had to close their eyes to uh, the non-reforms which were promoted by the governing party at that time because of the risk of throwing Moldova into the arms of the Socialist Party eventually, who is clearly pro-Russia. But at a certain point, it was no longer bearable, even for the international partners and for the EU uh, particularly, to hear these conflicting messages uh, when they were saying that they fight corruption and on the, or, or in the reality they generate corruption, where they fight criminality and in reality they do criminality. And the EU stated clearly that we would not no longer support you. You no longer have our support. So this was a turning point. And I have to say that at that time, the Democratic Party in Blachotniuk were very upset with the EU. So I think this is an illustration of uh, a case when the attitude of the international partners has triggered some results. In the end, it generated to building a new political elite, 
a new political party which has demonstrated that through fully transparent legal financing, through honest involvement of supporters and people to the party, it can still advance and it can have success, which before that was unimaginable. That's actually very encouraging. It's nice. It's always nice to hear something optimistic uh, coming from a system that I know has faced such great challenges over the years. Um, I know that we're almost out of time. Uh, you're very busy and you've already been very generous with your time. But, but I did want to just come back to something you mentioned very early in our conversation that we haven't followed up on, but that's the, um, the banking fraud case from 2012 to 2014. For, for people who are in the anti-corruption community and s- specifically, it may be the one thing about Moldova that they will have uh, heard of if they don't follow the country closely. This, My understanding is this was a very complicated scandal that ultimately resulted uh, in the looting of roughly a billion dollars from Moldova's three largest banks uh, in, again, I think it was around 2012, 2014, I think initially disclosed in 2014. Uh, people call it you know, the theft of the century and, and, and so forth. It sounds like one of the big lessons coming out of this, and this is how the context in which you mentioned this incident earlier, is that it just highlights the problem of state capture and the need for reform of the institutions of justice as well as the political system. In addition to that, can you maybe say a little bit more to explain to our listeners the basic background of what was going on and what the fallout has been and what kinds of measures, in addition to reforming the institutions of justice, um, might be appropriate? I ask in part because it's striking to me that the um, 1MDB scandal in Malaysia involved a similar amount of money, but has attracted a lot more international attention and a lot more discussion than has the, the Moldovan um, banking theft scandal. So I'd very much welcome your perspective on what we can learn about that incident and what we can do, what Moldova can do and what the international community can do to help prevent the recurrence of such incidents in the future. Well, it's hard to say what could have been done at that time. It's quite clear that this uh, fraud was not done by one person, not at least by five or 10 persons that there were much more people involved in this whole so-called theft of, uh, of the century. And there were institutions, public institutions, which were aware of what is going on in the banking sector, uh, that have access to information. And of course, ideally, we would have or should have had at least a couple of whistleblowers that would have come up in the public and said, and that would have been would, would have been perfect that these whistleblowers are from public institutions who directly hold the information and who have who are in the position to say that this is real that this is for real happening unfortunately this was not the case and it, we only started to hear about it when this was almost finished uh, unfortunately, the investigations from 2015, 14, 15 up to now are in a stalemate. So there was a period where the prosecutor, uh, the anti-corruption prosecution uh, has tried to put the blame, the whole blame for, for the banking fraud on one actor. Now with the new prosecutor general uh, who seems to reverse the exercise to indicate towards another actor. 
in my view, they, are all, they have all been involved. To what extent each of them were involved, it is a question that the prosecutions should answer. But it is clear that as, as long as there is no objective approach to this problem, there cannot, cannot be a fair and uh, complete and comprehensive solution. Well, that's disheartening. Uh, but I, I guess despite, despite that, I have to say I I'm, I'm, feel like at the end of this interview, I'm more optimistic and hopeful about Moldova than I, than I had been going into it, having only read uh, a little bit about the country. So before we wrap, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners about the current state of the fight against corruption in Moldova, uh, things that you would really like to emphasize as important things that the international anti-corruption community should know about what's going on in your country right now? Well, actually, we hope uh, very much that we will have, uh, as we do have now, uh, the support of the international community in our endeavors to uh, fight uh, corruption. And at this at this stage, we are... Uh, satisfied and uh, grateful for the support that we have uh, and we are receiving. At the same time, there are several areas where we should uh, still uh, concentrate to enhance cooperation also on bilateral level with certain countries uh, for action. So there are also indirect actions that can be taken in order to uh, track the beneficiaries of various big-scale corruption schemes, which we will be uh, initiating in the, in the upcoming period. Of course, it is not easy to do that without strong and a full cooperation on, on the side of the uh, prosecution service, because this is ultimately in their, uh, let's say, in their area of competence. Well, uh, we will do our best, that's for sure. But it's not going, and it's not going to be easy in any case. But it's going to be much easier if we manage to have anticipated parliamentary elections sooner than later. Well, great. So I wish I wish you and other people fighting for governance reform and anti-corruption Moldova the best of luck. And let me just express again my gratitude at your willingness to take some time out of your busy schedule to speak to me and to share your observations and insights with our listeners today. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Fantastic. So this has been an episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Matthew Stevenson, and my guest on this episode has been Olesea Stamate, who currently serves as an advisor to Moldovan President Maya Sandu, uh, particularly on justice issues. So thank you again, and have a great day. Thank you. You just listened to the 50th episode of Kickback on our two-year anniversary. Thanks for tuning in. As always, you can find the most important info about the interview in the show notes. And again, thanks so much for your loyal support. Over the last two years, we received so much positive feedback, which encourages us to keep recording new episodes, even if it means doing more work in our free time and on the weekends. We have a lot of new ideas how to develop the podcast even further. One, for example, is to provide written transcripts of the episodes. But for that, we need your support. There are a few ways how you can help us, and none of it will take you more than a few seconds or minutes. For example, write us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. 
We'd also appreciate it if you could use your own social media channels to post about Kickback and recommend us to your colleagues and friends. Finally, if you have a few bucks to spare, make a donation or become a Patreon at patreon.com slash kickbackpodcast. We will also add the link in the show notes. Every dollar, euro or real goes directly back into the podcast. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Every episode is a team effort by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for now. Have a great week.